This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. It is time to launch a new war against the evil of lies, deceit, and darkness and go all out to win the victory of truth and transparency and light. Sure. Go ahead. Believe everything you see on television, everything you read in the newspaper. Go ahead. Get your history out of the Encyclopedia Britannica. Yeah, that's right. Oswald killed Kennedy. Yeah, sure he did. Man, you are living in Disneyland. Fifteen hundred years ago, everybody knew the Earth was the center of the universe. Five hundred years ago, everybody knew the Earth was flat. And fifteen minutes ago, you knew that people were alone on this planet. Imagine what you know tomorrow. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Hello, radio family. Welcome aboard. Welcome to the broadcast. Hope you'll be with us for the duration. Another great show coming your way. And uh, before we get started, just a couple of some house cleaning, if you will. Yeah, house cleaning. Uh, we're cleaning up in that other room there. David Gaskin. Am I speaking out of school, David? Can I announce to the world? Is it okay? All right. David Gaskin, who is my, the, my third technical producer. He's more than a technical producer. But uh, since I arrived here three years ago, past uh, August 16th, he, uh, he just announced that he's leaving. And I don't know whether it's this show, whether it's me. Uh, my first technical producer was Dan Ellison. And after uh, a little less than a year, Dan said, I've had enough. I'm leaving. And uh, he, didn't have any, he didn't have a job lined up. He just wanted to hit the road and find himself. Like there's something, this program, I think, uh, uh, you know, gets my producers thinking about the, those deep questions, which is a good thing. And um, I don't know, maybe pulls the reality out from under their feet and then they just, they, they, they go running and screaming in the other direction. I must, I must find the answers. And then I had uh, Griffin March, who was another good technical producer. Uh, he left. He actually had another job waiting for him. David Gaskin has just, uh, when I came in tonight, he said, Richard, I'm leaving and I'm going to Kathmandu. I swear to God, Kathmandu. He's on the road to find himself. And I hope you find yourself. Um, Just don't, uh, you know, don't join any cults or anything like that. I don't want to see you in an airport in a tambourine, with a tambourine you know, in six months, David. But uh, anyway, we've got a few weeks to say goodbye. You're leaving at the end of September, and then we'll introduce you to the new guy, Tim, who's sitting in there learning the ropes. Tim, you've got big shoes, or I guess in David's case, uh, sandals to fill. (laughs) David's a very spiritual, calm individual. Uh, Yeah, don't join a cult. We're going to talk about, uh, well, what some see as a cult, the Freemasons. Some see it as a, uh, a misunderstood fraternity, happens to be one of the oldest and one of the biggest, the Freemasons. Others see something a little more nefarious afoot, including my uh, first guest. I had the great pleasure of, um, of meeting, I'm not going to tell you where I met Ed Decker. It's somewhere 
in the lower 48 states. And that's all I'm going to tell you because he has to keep his location kind of secret because he's been... He's been keeping his eye on, uh, on uh, Freemasonry for quite some time, and according to him, they don't like it, and uh, he's had a couple of attempts on his life, and we'll learn about that as well. Ed Decker is a retired pastor, broadcaster, author of The Dark Side of Freemasonry and What You Need to Know About the Masons. Ed, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. How are you, my friend? I'm all good. Can you hear me? I can. How are you feeling these days? I'm feeling great. I'm, I'm doing good, and, and uh, nobody's poisoned me for a long time, and... I haven't been beaten up, shot at, or <laughs> run off the road lately. I've, I'm doing really well. Terrific. And, and we, will, we will talk a little bit about some of your close calls. Now, let's, um, let's just dive right in here. We, we, we have an hour to discuss what would probably, could probably fill up um, a month of uh, three-hour programs. And now, I know you, you have a radio show. Do you talk about Freemasons uh, yes, I do, on fact, a nightly um, basis? or? If your listeners uh, have a pen or pencil, I can remember a thing called uh, www.deckerreport.com, because my program is called The Decker Report, but deckerreport.com, or you can just go Decker Report on on an Android app or uh, an Apple app um, and pull me down. And uh, the reason I'm telling you this is because in, let me see, uh, one, one, two, three, three weeks... On my program, I, I, I put my programs up on the web, uh, on iTunes and places like that, uh, every Monday. And on the, that particular week, I'm taking the listener inside a, a, a uh, Masonic ritual, right into the Masonic ritual itself, and leading them through it and showing them the absolute occult practices that go on at the very lowest level, of Freemasonry, and then at the end, after I've done the ritual uh, of initiation to the candidate in that level, then I bring them all the way right up through all the other initiations and give you the blood oaths, and I just I just open up the belly of the beast, and it's the first time I've really done it this way. They can they can just feel the sweat that the that, that's coming out of the brow of the candidate as he's swearing blood oaths to obey things he doesn't even know what they are yet. Before we launch into this discussion, Ed, I think it's, it's uh, important to begin the discussion um, with just a general statement that, at least this is my interpretation, you correct me if I'm wrong, that most Masons, those, I guess, below 33rd degree, actually believe that they're involved in a, 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 a fraternity that's that's uh, involved in, in charitable works and uh, the betterment of mankind, the betterment of self. It's a great place uh, to to network. Uh, uh, you know, well, there, there was well, a time. Well, yes and no. Okay. Uh, first off, I, I just wanted to um, just kick right off the off the edge of our conversation and say that uh, the work that you are in and that I'm in has an extremely high mortality rate. Not just people who die at a young age and, and, and for various reasons, but the people who work around us, there's a heaviness, a spiritual heaviness, and, and you know, I've just learned to, when I've got somebody working with me, I was doing the technical work like, the, like at my radio show, if those people leave, you just got to bless them and know that they've gone through a heavy spiritual battle for you, and, and so uh, give these guys a kiss on the cheek because they've They've been dealing with a heaviness because this is heavy stuff. Oh, you just connected some dots because I, I let off the show talking about uh, my, my third technical producer leaving, and maybe that's, uh, that's what's sending uh, 
uh, Dave Gaskin uh, packing for Kathmandu, but uh, yeah, he ought to try. He ought to try Maui, or you know, or, or Kauai, you know, or Cancun. You know, it's a lot nicer in those places. <laughs> I've been in all of them. Hey, uh, the the it's it's the lower level. It's the blue lodge. You got to realize that masonry is is kind of segmented. The lower lodge, called the blue lodge, are the first three degrees of Freemasonry. And the upper level masons are, are they call the blue lodge the outer court, <clears throat> and so you've got all these guys who join it because it's a, a, a fraternity. Their buddies are in it, and the the boss at work is in it, and and it is a great networking program. And where I grew up, my my family have been Masonic uh, families. Uh, the la- the first of my uh, ancestors that I can actually document is a great 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 grandfather type who uh, was uh, seated as a master mason in 1805 in his lodge. And so that's how far back I go. And my family uh, primarily were Blue Lodge masons, rural masons. Uh, and in the, in, in the country where I, I grew up, upstate New York, actually, uh, really, I mean, out in the, you know, w- you know, I, I when I was a kid, we had outhouse. We didn't have inside plumbing. We were we were in the country, and and the men uh, were all involved in the local blue lodge masonry, and they joined together uh, at the at the Grange, which is another Masonic organization to 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 buy grain and and feed and and things necessary for our farms in a cooperative way. But it was a Masonic organization that did that and. You know, basically, you had to be a, a mason to get along with these guys, and that's what my dad did, and his dad, and his dad, and uh, it was good for business. Uh, um, it was good for banking, um, whatever it is that you wanted to do. If you were a mason, you were able to acquire that because of the network program. You know, wrapping around all that, uh, we never got into the higher levels of masonry, primarily because we were farmers, rural people. Uh, however, if you got into the cities, you got up into the, the Scottish Rite, which went up to the 32nd degree. Uh, and then you also, if you didn't go up the Scottish Rite, and some went up both sides, then you had the York Rite, which they say was Christian uh, Rite, which really wasn't. And then when you got up to the 32nd degree, you were then able to uh, apply to be a Shriner, and uh, and they... That uh, was another organization within Freemasonry, and if you were really hot and you were a judge or you were, you know, a, a rich guy, you owned a factory and so forth, and you were putting money into the lodge, you would then become a 33rd degree Mason. Now you know, and I know you do because we've discussed it. You you know Bill Schneblin. Yes. Uh, and Bill worked for me for seven years, and and uh, I know Bill very very well. Bill was involved in the occult and heavily involved in the occult, and he was also in the higher levels, the, the esoteric levels of Freemasonry, where a lot of witchcraft and Satanism and things like that went on. Those are the guys who knew what it was all about. They knew that the, the, uh, the, the average guy in Freemasonry um, didn't have a clue about the satanic ritual section. You know, and this is, uh, overwhelms me because everything in Freemasonry, I mean, uh, Knights of the East and West and the uh, Scottish Rite, you learn the sacred name of masonry. It's Abaddon, and you read uh, 
you read in the Bible, it says that, that demons in the pit of hell had a king over them, and his name in the, in the Hebrew was Abaddon. Yet you're taking on Abaddon as your sacred name of Freemasonry. You know, you know, where's your brain? Uh, you know, particularly if you're a Christian and you read the Word and you study the Word, and suddenly you're doing things in various levels. You, you, be, you be get ordained to the Melchizedek priesthood, like the Mormons do, usurping the priesthood of Jesus Christ. Uh, you, you learn that the sacred name, it, it, the Blue Lodge, is always this little game going on that you're seeking the name of deity, and, and it's the lost word that you're always seeking. However, uh, you're in, in the... Uh, uh, Rosicrucian and, and in the in the Rosy Cross, the, the the higher levels of Mason, you learn that the sacred name of God is Jobulin, which stands for Jehovah Baal and Osiris, a three-headed deity. Um, so so all these all these things are buried all inside of it. You 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 receive the white throne. Uh, you you receive the 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 white lambskin apron in the in the entered apprentice uh, level when you're given the apron at the end once you've gone through the initiation, and you're told that it's your covering when you stand before the white throne judgment, and if you read in uh, Revelations the white throne judgment is the judgment of the damned, mm-hmm. so you know you, you look at these things and you say my goodness how can it, it seems to be cut and dried. It seems to be pretty cut and dried. Ed Decker is with us, uh, broadcaster, author of The Dark Side of Freemasonry, and also What You Need to Know About the Masons. Uh, we'll uh, step away here for a moment, come back, pick it up on the other side, and uh, we'll also open up the lines and ask you, uh, are you a Mason? Were you a Mason and decided to quit? Are you interested in getting into the Freemasons uh, and would like to know more about uh, this organization? And what are your thoughts? Is this a misunderstood fraternity or... Is it some sort of satanic cult? Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Exploring theories, uncovering facts, and offering a different view of the universe. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Just took a few moments off the air and uh, called my insurance broker, who happens to be a friend of mine, just to make sure my life insurance payments were uh, were, were paid up. And uh, they promised me my... Um, my my uh, my premiums will never change going forward. Uh, talking to Ed Decker, I bring that up because we're talking about the Freemasons. And uh, Ed, I think you raise a good point. You know, a lot of people in this business, uh, either you know broadcasters or researchers, uh, people like yourself, um, for whatever reason, we don't last too long. <laughs> and um, I want to talk to you about um, your run-in with uh, the Freemasons in in a few moments. But l- let me just clear up a few points here. What first first of all, what goes on in the 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 initiation the first initiation 
Well, of course, the the the, uh, the for fellow who is the initiate, he uh, he is standing at the front door of, of the lodge on the outside. He's got uh, his his chest is open. Uh, he's he's blindfolded. Actually, they have what they call hoodwinked, and in some uh, jurisdictions, they put an actual blindfold type of thing on him. In other ones, they put a hood over his head, and then he has a noose around his neck, and. Um, and then he is supposed to be knocking at the doors, and, I, and I'm making this uh, the short version. Um, I'm leaving some things out. He's barefoot with, and uh, one foot, and he's got uh, all of his jewelry removed. His wedding ring has has been taken from him, um, and he, uh, you know, basically he's going in there as a poor wayfarer seeking the light of the lodge. Uh, how? Uh, 40, they say 40%, and let's just knock it down to even less, let's knock it down to half of what the people who say 40% say, and say 20%, one out of every five Southern Baptist pastors is a Mason. You know, uh, as, as many as 40% of them are, to, uh, two out of five, and, and, and what you've got are men of God who know the Word of God, and they're they're allowing themselves to be in that kind of position. And the guy's got a knife uh, to pierce, you know, to pretend to pierce him at his at his chest. Uh, should he be, uh, you know, letting him know the threat of of danger walking into the lodge, and he's seeking the light of the lodge. And he goes in and he kneels down at an altar. They move him around a bit, and they do a bunch of a supercilious uh, ritual. Um, with the worshipful master and the senior steward and the senior deacon and all these other people all interact and so mode it be they just repeat a whole bunch of stuff at the different stations and he ends up at the altar and he's kneeling there and uh, he goes through a ritual and uh, uh, again uh, it's almost to the point of boring there's so much of the intricacies of the ritual but when it's all done he swears this oath. He says, all this I most solemnly, sincerely promise and swear with a firm and steadfast resolution to perform the same. And bear in mind, he doesn't know what he's getting into yet, but he's still swearing this oath. Without any mental reservation or secret evasion of mine, whatever, binding myself under no less penalty than, than that of having my throat cut across, my tongue torn out by its roots, and my body buried in the rough sands of the sea at low watermark, where the tide ebbs and flows twice in 24 hours, should I ever knowingly violate this my entered apprentice obligation. So help me God and keep me steadfast in the due performance of the same. Further, I will not cheat, wrong, nor defraud a brother of this degree knowingly or supplant him in any of his laudable undertakings. And we go on for you know, 30 degrees, and it just gets worse and worse and worse uh, on the penalties. And uh, in the 30th degree, he's drinking uh, his, his oath uh, um, and taking uh, communion uh, out of a human skull, drinking wine out of a human skull and taking bread and saying that that he's the very particles of Jesus, Socrates, and the Arabian iconoclast are part of him now. Now these are these are pretty powerful metaphors, but what do they mean? Well, they mean basically that this man has bound himself by a blood oath of the most serious nature to the lodge and to the craft. And when they call it craft, it's more aligned with the 
priestcraft that you read about in Egypt and, and, in, and, and in the uh, uh, early pagan temples. And so they've sworn these oaths. And again, the Bible says, Jesus says, to swear no oath. No, well, basically, don't swear these oaths, he says, because if you do, they come from the evil one. They come from the devil. And in James, you read, it says, if you swear these oaths, they bring condemnation. That's why I'm saying, how can a pastor in his right mind do this? You know, and then he goes into the church, and his deacons and his elders are, 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 are masons. How can the Holy Spirit of God operate in a church that's run by the devil? Now, they often refer to the light bearer uh, in, in uh, Masonic Well, they talk literature. about the light bearer all the time, and the light bearer is Lucifer. And how do we know that? Explain. Well, because Albert Pike described it uh, uh, very, very clearly that, uh, you, know, we, you know, we bow down. The, 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 true, the true deity is, is Lucifer, the light bearer. Uh, uh, Manly P. Hall, who was a Luciferian uh, and, and a high-level Mason, wrote many books about it, and, and, and The Secrets of the Dark Ages. Uh, and and uh, he writes about it and talks about Lucifer being the power of, uh, of control. You've got to learn how to, to control the seething energies of Lucifer to be a proper Mason. And do you think that at the higher level, 33rd degree and beyond, they are actually in communion with, with Satan? Absolutely. Are they Absolutely. conjuring him? Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I've, I've, I can't give you all the details. I've been inside the Masonic rituals, the highest level ones. And, I, and I've, I've, I've actually been inside the House of the Temple on 16th Street in, in, in Washington, D.C., into the innermost levels of it. And didn't think when I was in there, I wasn't sure I was going to get out alive. And 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 I was thinking this was pretty stupid because I hadn't really told anybody I was going in there. You're conjuring up images of Stanley Kubrick's uh, uh, final movie, Eyes Wide Shut. <laughs> Have you seen that? No, I haven't. But <laughs> you, you, but you know about the movie. I'm ga- I'm gathering a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. It sounds like that. Uh, so, y- what, what are you saying? Uh, there, you're not saying there were human sacrifices going on, are you? No, I'm not. I'm just saying that uh, it became very obvious that I was not that I was standing up against the spirits of darkness in that place, and there were men around me that were staring at me and looking at me, and I'm thinking, you know. Uh, I, I might have the Lord on my side here, but quite frankly, these guys have spiritual discernment that comes from the dark one, and I'm in the dark one's property. You know, and, and uh, what am I, you know, how, how can I, you know, what can I do here if suddenly something turns? Because there was, I had no protection and nobody knew I was in there. Is it fair to describe um, this fraternity, Ed, as a, a cult hiding within a fraternity? In other words, yeah, there are I, two I do separate... That because most of the guys, that's like my dad, when I started doing some revelation in this area, you know, he said, you, he didn't speak to me for two years. He just said, you, 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 uh, you, you, uh, you're telling me that your mother and I are Satan worshipers? <laughs> my dad, you know, he, <laughs> you know, somebody asked him, he, he, we had a past forceful master um, who had gotten saved, and he went and talked to my dad, and my, he asked my dad, he said, he said, are you, are you a Christian? You know, and my dad said, of course I am an American, aren't I? 
I mean, you know, that was about as deep as my dad. At that time, mm-hmm. my dad finally got really saved and set free from that, and he spent the last years of his life in a joyous time, but he had that heaviness. In fact, any time there was communion in our church, my dad would get up and leave the church. He couldn't stay in the church while while Christian communion was being taken because he had taken the other. Interesting. Now, is is it true that the higher Masons are sworn to deceive and lie to the lower Masons. Oh, yeah, oh, very very clearly. Uh, my book, uh, The Question of Freemasonry, uh, which is available on our website at DeckerReport.com, uh, it's a very inexpensive book, but it just lays out all the information about Freemasonry and its separation from Christianity and, and its occult power. Uh, and and uh, it's, it's just like a five-buck book. It's not an expensive book. Uh, but I'm telling you, there is material that I have in there that, that just lays that right out. They say, you know, we are taught to deceive the lower levels. And the funny part about masonry is that, so you go into that as an inter-apprentice, and the, and the masons who are higher than you, they're deceiving you. They're not telling you what's really going on. You, each time you go up a, a level, you learn a little bit more, and then you're deceiving the people below you. And um, it's like an occult downline of some kind. And then the higher you up you go, when you get out of the blue blue lodge, you find out, wow, those blue blue lodge guys are just walking around like like cattle in a in a you know in a feedlot. Uh, they're good guys and they're having good parties and so forth. But when you get up to the higher levels of the thirty third degree, these guys are really in the occult. Was FDR and, a thirty third degree mason? Pardon me. Was FDR a thirty third degree mason? I don't think he was. No. Um, I'm not sure what his level was, to be quite frank with you. But, but there have been these. there have been reportedly presidents and Supreme Court judges and secretaries of war and so forth that were were, if not thirty third, certainly very high up in the Masons. Well, sixteen Ma- sixteen presidents have been Masons, and then of course we've had a few uh, in the Bush family who were who were uh, members of the uh, uh, Skull and Bones Society, which is a, is a uh, even a higher, a tighter, more elite organization. Ed Decker is with us, and he is uh, the author of The Dark Side of Freemasonry, also What You Need to Know About the Masons, also. Uh, I, I wanted to point out, yes. however, there's a, there's a black um, masonry, and uh, uh, they ran a whole campaign and had a, had a uh, at, at the inauguration, um, uh, Prince Hall Lodge uh, had, a, had an inauguration ball for, for uh, our present president, and they had to form that because at one time blacks were excluded from being Freemasons. Is that is that the origin of? of... Well, not only were blacks excluded, Jews were excluded, blacks were excluded. I'm talking about the United States, right? But you also got to remember that uh, that um, Albert Pike, who was the basically the father of American Freemasonry, was also one of the founders of the Ku Klux Klan. And I had the opportunity to be speaking uh, to a number of leaders in the uh, in the Prince Hall Lodge. Uh, organization and they were telling me how you know fine it was and I you know speaking to them why did you you know why do we have the uh, the, the, the Prince Hall lodges of Freemasonry you know identical pretty much to the to the other to the regular ones but why did you why did you do that well you know they were trying to say well look, it's because the blacks wanted to have their own special identity and so forth you know like the black caucus in Washington DC and I said, no, that's not true. The reason why you weren't allowed to be in there, if you were a, even had a drop of black blood in you, you'd never get be a Mason. And I said, and how any black man could ever even want anything to do with Masonry of any kind, 
when when uh, the guy who was the father of American masonry founded the Ku Klux Klan. How do they react when you tell them that? They just... <laughs> they kind of jump back and look at you, and they don't have any answer. Uh, a couple of guys get up and run out of the room. You know what I mean? It's just like, uh, you know, I, I was speaking at a Christian workers uh, organization, and, and some guy um, in that crowd of Masons was sitting there in my front row, and he told me that uh, he was going to uh, expose me. And um, for my lies, and and uh, I began speaking, and I made a comment. I said, and it had something to do with my dad. And I said, you know, you think God doesn't see that that paraphernalia that you have hidden in the bottom drawer of your dresser in your bedroom? And this guy jumped up and ran out of the building like he'd been shot with a with an arrow in his head. I mean, he went out that door. I mean, he just ran down this long corridor out between the chairs and stuff, down out the back door, and he was gone. And I thought, well, that's the end of that. And about 40 minutes later, just as I was finishing up my question and answer time, the door bangs open. Here comes this guy with a box running in at the same speed that he ran out in and came on up and right at the stair, stairs going up to the podium area, he just dumped this box of garbage and paraffin, masonic paraphernalia on thing, threw himself on the floor and began weeping. My word! It turned that that's where his stuff was hidden, and he, he a little he too close I had to the bone. It word from God, and I was just actually maybe God used it. But I was just talking about my dad's stash. Ed, it true or false uh, that Masons, at some level, are they are required to swear an oath that they will never testify against another Mason in court? Yes, that's very true. And and uh, um, on my program. Coming up, I will do that. I'm, I think I might even have it here on my notes as I'm going to slip through it here. Um, uh, we go up into the higher levels, and they, they basically promise that they will never, all Masons above the third or master's degree are sworn to keep and violate the secrets of a brother, murder and treason, accepted up to the seventh or royal arch degree. However, in the oath of this degree, the candidate swears to keep all the secrets of companion of this, companions of this degree, murder and treason not accepted. All Masons of and above this degree are swallowly bound to do this. The same is true of all the points sworn all the way up into this obligation. And later on, in the higher degrees, oath does not exempt murder and treason. Now, let me just, uh, let me just emphasize that point. In the higher degrees of the Masonic Lodge, murder and treason are not exempted from that oath. In other words, you must not testify against another Mason who has murdered or committed treason. Listen, we have to take a time out, Ed. We'll be back on the other side. I've got some Masons waiting on the line, chomping at the bit, no doubt. And uh, are you good to take those calls? Ed? Yeah. Okay, we'll do that when we come back. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Corporations, governments, and sometimes entire civilizations. What goes up must come down. And it lands on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 
Fasten your seatbelt and put your tray in the upright position. You're about to leave everything you know behind on The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Upcoming on the program, I'll speak with a professor of biology. This is a PhD who has uh, published numerous articles in uh, peer-reviewed journals. Uh, He teaches uh, biology at a uh, Christian university, and he owns an exact replica of the Shroud of Turin, and he'll be... uh, along to discuss what he um, has found regarding what is probably the, the most studied artifact in human history, or relic, if you will. Is it, a, um, in fact, the, uh, the authentic burial cloth of Jesus Christ with evidence of a resurrection, or is it a clever medieval forgery? We'll discuss. Also, uh, coming up on the 9th, as we approach the 11th anniversary of the uh, September 11th attacks, 2001, I'll speak with commercial, uh, former commercial airline pilot uh, Phil Marshall, uh, who has written a book called The Big Bamboozle, 9-11 and the War on Terror. That's up and coming, and you can check all uh, upcoming shows at richardserrett.com. Ed Decker stays with us as we discuss Freemasons. Uh, f- let's, uh, let's go to the phones and uh, welcome William from Massachusetts. Hello, William. Welcome. Hello. Can you hear me? I can. Go ahead. You're on the line with Ed Decker. Yes, um, I, I noticed your guest mentioned earlier, you know, about uh, after the order of Melchizedek, and I don't know if it has anything to do with that, but uh, I know my dad and his dad before him were both Masons, Scottish Rite, and uh, my dad was 32nd degree the day he was installed as master at Cambridge Masonic Temple in Massachusetts. And I think I was like 13 or 14. But I remember as a child, every February, uh, it was around the time of like Washington or Lincoln's birthday, there would be like a ceremony at the temple and they'd have like a dinner. And, you know, you'd sit uh, in the room with the black and white squares and the seats on the side and stuff, you know, same as the night my dad was installed. And I think that was like an exoteric ceremony for us, you know, and then we'd have the dinner and the magic show for the family, and they'd have their, like, meeting, you know. And I don't know if there was anything evil to it, you know. Everything seemed normal to us when I was a kid. Are you a Mason, William? William, are you a Mason? No, I'm not a Mason. Okay. You know, I never knocked on the door, but I know... That's all you have to do. All right. So, uh, Ed, how do you respond to William, who, like a lot of people, say, listen, well, I went William, to the meetings, I, I son. You know, I, I was a kid growing up with it as, as well, so I, I'm familiar, and that was probably uh, um, Washington's birthday celebration because he was, you know, the first president and, and, a, and, and a, an acclaimed Mason even to this day, and uh, even though he renounced it later on, but neither here nor there, uh, that was probably that, and... When you're young and when you're watching these mystical things going on, this, the actual ritual itself is pretty benign because of the families present. But even in that, there are key words. You know, uh, that I notice that in almost every, well, I notice it 
in every cult group and occult group where they are faced with public uh, viewing that words mean different things to the inner person there than what they mean to the regular person. If, if uh, like a Mormon says Jesus, you initially think, hey, Jesus, that they're talking about Jesus. Well, they're talking about a Jesus who was born through an act of sex between Mary and God, and he is the brother of Lucifer. So the word may mean one thing to you on the face of it, but in, inside the ritual are buried words that have specific and special secondary meanings to the Masons present, and it'll go right over, it'll go right over the, uh, the non-initiated head. They, you won't see that. It'll be kind of, oh, wow, look at all the funny costumes and the hats and, you know, and the sashes and, all, and the aprons and what have you, and that looks nice. And now we're having dinner and we're going to have some kind of a, a you know, a entertainment. Uh, it's done very well that way. Uh, thank you for the call, William. I, 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 this isn't obviously a show about uh, the Mormons, although it's interesting, you know, given that Mitt Romney is um, running for president and is a very high-profile um, Mormon, but I was not aware uh, of that connection between Jucifer, J- Jesus and, and Lucifer in their faith. But uh, we'll, we'll leave that for another program. I'm sure Mormons would have uh, something to say about that. Uh, Richard will join us in Hamilton next, and Jennifer in Toronto, who says she was educated by Masons. Joining us on the line is Ed Decker from Parts Unknown. We'll find out why he's living in Parts Unknown before the hour is up as we discuss Freemasonry right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario at 1-866-740-4740. Ed Decker is with us, The Dark Side of Freemasonry. you mentioned George Washington uh, earlier on, who was a Mason. Uh, interesting that he renounced it. I'd, I'd be curious to know why. But but before you answer that, let me ask you, uh, I've heard it said that uh, we know that Washington, D.C., is is laid out uh, to, to look like a, a Masonic uh, compass. What is the significance of that? Uh, I mean, the Washington Monument, of course, is, an you know, this obelisk, which is, a, some say, a Masonic uh, symbol. Uh, I've even heard it said that because so many of the early founding fathers were Masons, it's been suggested that the United States itself is a Masonic plot. What do you think of that, Ed? Well, it wasn't a plot, uh, because the Masons were kindly people. They, they basically felt uh, that's why we're a republic. Uh, instead of a you know, full-out democracy, the, the uh, Masons who were involved in the layout of the... You know, and, and, and it wasn't an easy uh, process in the development of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights and all those kinds of things. And the Declaration of Independence, it was, it was, uh, it was a... Um, it was a constructed thing, and, and uh, 
they thought that the the rules of masonry uh, to make good men better and so forth and so on, and, and a universalist God. I mean, they they talk about you know you have to believe in a God, and and uh, uh, they talk about the altar of Freemasonry around which all believers of any kind of a God can gather together. They they laid out the the, the architect of the streets in Washington D.C. was a Mason from France and Lafont, and and they. Uh, Laid out the square of the compass and the rule, the the, um, uh, the, the White House, uh, uh, all the different uh, uh, all the different tools of masonry are laid out in the actual streets of Washington D.C. And if they go to my website uh, uh, at DeckerReport.com, click on the Masonic symbol there, uh, and it'll take you to a a, a, a file that has about maybe a hundred different articles on Freemasonry, and one of them is called uh, uh, Satan's Door to America, the layout of Washington, D.C., and you'll see the picture of the map and everything else there that lays out the complete layout by Masonic ritual and Masonic control, the streets of Washington, D.C., but you mentioned at, at the lower levels uh, that, you know, these Masons were good people. They, they wanted uh, the betterment of mankind. But I guess what we're preoccupied with tonight are those people at the higher level. What are, higher the, level, what are they, what do they want? What do they want, Ed? What do they want to well, do? You know, I, I, was sitting, I was sitting in a restaurant at, at, at a Tommy Bahamas or whatever. Not a Tommy Bahamas, a shirt. Uh, Benny Hahan or something like that in, in, in uh, Honolulu, uh, Hawaii, some years ago. And one of my daughters had gone to a radio station with me where I talked about Freemasonry, and she was talking at the table. And, you know, we're sitting around this big frying table where people are making the food and throwing it in the air and all that sort of stuff. And, and there's a couple uh, in, in their 50s sitting on my side, on the side of it. I'm sitting there with my wife and my daughter. And so and they're all spread around the table. And my daughter was talking about me being on the radio, and the guy says, what, what were you doing on the radio? And my daughter says, oh, he was talking about... The evils of Freemasonry, which I which she, I wish she hadn't spoken about, and so this guy looks at me, and the conversation on the table is going on. He says, "You know what Palladian Masonry is?" And I said, "Yeah, I do. It's, it's the Assassin Group." And he said, "Well, I'm a member of it." And he said, "I could reach across the table, kill you, and walk out of here before your head hit the table." And he just looked at me with the most evil look. And I said, try it. You know, come on, try it. And he just looked at me, and he and his wife got up and left. And when I was getting out, when later on we were, we were sitting there for, oh, maybe another hour, we left and went to get into our car, and he was standing there behind the car watching me the whole time and uh, just, just staring. And, and, my, uh, my, my. These guys are, are mind-boggling. There's evil in those levels. What is this assassin's um, um, sect called again? Palladium. 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 P-A-L-L-I-D. And do you believe that they genuinely are trained in these deadly arts? Absolutely. Absolutely. So he could have done what he said he could do. Absolutely. But what are you going to do? You know, I mean, my my attitude has always been because I've been shot at, beat up, poisoned, you know, uh, (laughs) run off the road so many times that I've lost count that I... That I that I either have to trust God to 
that I'm doing what he wants me to do. Otherwise, you know, I'm gone. So that's just kind of the way it is. I do take precautions, obviously, as you well know. Right. So, uh, so while the other, the mainstream foot soldiers in in the Masons are busy uh, raising money for burn units in hospitals and sending kids underprivileged kids to summer camp, yeah. what are the what are the higher levels doing? Are they are they overthrowing presidents? Are they fomenting war? Are they fixing they're, they're, uh, interest they're, they're rates? Negotiating contracts. They're developing. Uh, you know, uh, power uh, groups within governments—they—they're all over—they're all over the world, and and uh, I've run into them, and you know, dragged out of a meeting by a bunch of them in the Philippines, you know, one time to get killed and live through that. They—they're—they're uh, they're very powerful in the in the uh, police forces, for example. They're in the in the law and attorneys and judges in the United States are—you almost got to be a Mason to be one proper who can serve. And and we were talking about. Oaths that 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 you lie and and that you'll protect a a fellow Mason. You go into a court of law, you give a Masonic sign of distress, or you know come to the square with your feet, or do do some things um, in that jurisdiction, and and that judge knows you're a Mason. You got you're, you're not going to get found guilty of anything. We had a case in in uh, Seattle a number of years ago, a very high prominent member of the industrial community here in the Seattle area, whoops, I just kind of told you the area I'm in. And and uh, there uh, in the Seattle area, a guy owned a big manufacturing company, and he got caught sexually molesting a grandchild. Oh, my. And they brought him to court. He was caught cold. You know, no ifs, ands, or buts about it. This was a boy, not a girl. And so... He went to court. The judge, the second day of the trial, came out and said, yesterday I did an XYZ, which was uh, improper for me to do, and basically because I did that, I have invalidated this trial, and he is released with no chance of being prosecuted again because of my error. And both were Masons, the judge and both the accused. Both were 33rd degree Masons. Oh, my. And the whole place went crazy over it. But the judge said, "That's I'm sorry, but that's what happened, you know. And he got censured by the State Bar Association. But he never, but because the guys in the State Bar Association are Masons, he never was taken down as from being a judge. And the guy walked away totally clean, totally clear, nothing, zero. And that was an prime example of hiding the sin of a fellow Mason. Richards in Hamilton, thanks for holding on, Richard. Your uh, question, comment. Ed Decker. Uh, good, e- uh, good evening, uh, gentlemen. Uh, I'm a, a, a Blue Lodge uh, Mason plus a Red Lodge Mason, and some of the... Uh, um, I'm just trying to get my thoughts together. Uh, my apologies for that. But first off, I've First met uh, me, uh, two Masons, and I didn't realize they were Masons till years later when I uh, joined the uh, uh, joined the lodge. Uh, I had an uncle that was had terminal cancer, and these two gentlemen were businessmen, and they let him go because he was uh, um, too ill to work. But they every week they showed up to take him to the hospital or doctor's appointments, and and they were 33rd degree Masons. And the uh, part about uh, the uh, 
uh, the the oath and the penalties within them before uh, now the, before the the oath is given. Uh, the the oath is given. The uh, they have they mention that it's only symbolic now. It's not uh, actual. Any of those uh, penalties will not be done. Well, why would you swear them anyway, Richard? I mean, I, I, I can't, if, you know, particularly if you're a, a Christian, why would you violate what Jesus says? I mean, if you believe Jesus is Lord and he says that if you swear these oaths, that they, bring, they come from the devil. And, and, and later on in James it says that if you swear these oaths, blood oaths, these are what you call blood oaths, having your throat slit from ear to ear and your tongue ripped out by the roots as a blood oath. And if you swear that, it says it brings condemnation. And when you got your lambskin apron, you're told that it's going to that you're covering at the great at the white throne judgment, which is the judgment of the damned, those dead not in Christ. Why would you? How can that be symbolic when it is it's coming out of your mouth? Hello. Yes. Go ahead. Uh, 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 basically, I think it was just meant to uh, uh, to uh, scare people that. Uh, new members that the the oaths are not to be given out uh, so lately, or and it's for uh, for supporting another Mason who uh, does wrong. The um, uh, we've been told to obey the laws of the land and the or the country that we are either residing or visiting, and that includes telling the truth uh, before uh, the justice system. So if uh, if if another mason, uh, if I witness another mason doing something wrong, and I'm called as a witness, I have to tell the truth. Uh, okay, Richard, uh, Ed, I think you've you've sort of stated that it's above a certain level, above the blue lodge, where you're actually sworn to to uh, protect another mason in court. Uh, is that correct? Yeah, it is. But yeah. that's neither here nor there. What he doesn't realize, though, is that by that he is that he's in what they call the outer court area, and where they're given the milk and not the meat. And so, even though he he he's given these oaths, but then he's told that, oh, hey, you know, don't take them too seriously. You know, if you had a noose around your neck and you you were blindfolded when you when you went in through that door, um, uh, you know, and you were kneeling at at, at, a, at an altar uh, with a Bible on it, I hope, uh, and and you were swearing his oath, it is not symbolic. All right, Jennifer is in Toronto. Jennifer, welcome to the Conspiracy Show. Go ahead. Hi, Jennifer, are you there? Yes, I am. You're on the air. Go ahead. Um, hi. I don't have a question so much as I just want to say that um, I get quite upset when I hear people downgrading the Masons because I was in England. My father was a Mason. Then when he passed away when I was five, um, the Masons took on our education, and everything was paid for right through, through uh, university. And if ever we were in financial trouble, they were there to help us. And, I mean... You know, I get quite insulted when um, your guest is saying that, uh, you know, Masons are worshipping the devil and everything. I don't know whether the, the Masonic lodges in England are a lot different to here. I mean, I know we don't have the Shriners in England. But um, I think, you know, um, in fairness to people that are Masons, that your guest should watch what he says and doesn't, doesn't just come out and say that they're all Satan worshippers. Well, we don't, we're not asking Nobody anybody to say, we don't want anyone to watch what they say, Jennifer. That has kind of an odious... You know, I, I feel quite upset knowing what the Masons have done for me, and I'm sure that none okay. of them were 
were Satan worshippers or anything. Well, I think Badet has addressed that. He's been very careful to address the fact that, that, that most Masons are good, honest people who have been, as he says, deceived by these upper echelons of the Masons. However, your point is well taken, Jennifer, and I thank you for it. Uh, Ed, uh, just oh, about... I, I appreciate her comments, and, I, you know, and I've seen a lot of really good stuff done by the Masons as well, and I'm not talking about this kind of thing, and, and uh, I'm talking about the fact, and, you know, and, and they swear, you know, to take care of the widows and the orphans, you know, and they do a pretty good job of it, and I'm not saying that's not true. I'm talking about this, you know, beyond the philosophical and the altruistic ends of this, I'm talking about the oath and the the, 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 the gut of it, which is anti-biblical, and, and it is demeaning of the, the, uh, the God of, of the universe, and their god is a god called Jobulon, a, a Jehovah, Baal, and Osiris. And my, you know, if you're a pagan, God bless you and have a great time. But if you're a Christian, get out of it, because the darkness is on the corners. You know, you go around the corners of the good stuff, and the darkness is always there. And I'm sorry it's that way, and it has nothing to do with your dad or nothing to do with my father or my grandfather or anything else like that. I'm talking about the theological aspects of the darkness that sits on top of Freemasonry. Just about out of time, uh, Ed. Are, are the Masons, the Freemasons at the higher levels again, tied in with uh, the Bilderbergs, for example? The Bilderberg group? Well, of course, that's all, you know, that's all kind of another, another uh, program. <laughs> what, what you have here is, a, is, is that these men who are mighty and powerful in business and politics and, you know, in industry and what and finances and things like that, these same men get involved in these other organizations as well. All right, uh, we, uh, we're we finished on that note, but we will have you back on and uh, uh, pursue this further at some point. Uh, Ed, uh, stay well, and good talking to you again. Hey, that's a fast hour. I'll say, I'll say, but we got a lot of information out there, and I well, thank bless you for that. You. And, and remember, DeckerReport.com, you can get all the backup documentation of everything I say on my website. Nothing I say isn't backed up with Masonic data. DeckerReport.com. Thanks, Ed. Stay well. Have a good one. And, of course, you can stay updated on The Conspiracy Show at RichardSerrett.com. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrin from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Wow, summer is almost gone. What do we have? About a week left, and then uh, the little ones are back to school, and uh, we'll def- deflate the, uh, the waiting pool and um, put away the sunscreen. Wow. 
Where did it go? Um, I hope you uh, you had a good summer wherever you are. The Mighty Aphrodite was just up at uh, Casino Rama um, last week. I was in L.A. and uh, uh, I'll tell you a little bit about that later. But the Mighty Aphrodite went up with a friend to see Barry Manilow, and um, you know he's getting on in age, but he can still bring it. Apparently, wonderful performance, and she had a great time. Just great seats and and. and uh, um, Hopefully, before the summer is out, we'll get up there again and uh, see some great acts. Uh, particularly, I mean, I'm a big classic rock fan, and some some of these bands, you know, they lose a couple of members. Uh, they're no longer, you know, filling the arenas uh, or the, the the football stadiums, but they're still around, and um, you can. It's it's a great opportunity to see them in probably one of the best uh, facilities in terms of the sound quality. Like Ringo Starr plays up there every year, several times a year, and he raves about it. And all the artists that come and play at Casino Rama, it's just the sound is absolutely incredible. Uh, so if you haven't been up there this summer uh, or in, in the fall, try and try and catch a concert at Casino Rama. Obviously, there's much more to do up there, but uh, as a music fan, I'll tell you. All right. Um, what else? Oh, I, I, you know, I was um, uh, this past summer, I was working on another project and I was uh, I, I produced a documentary about this, I produced about 10 of them, and, and, and uh, one of them was about this orthopedic surgeon down in upstate New York, and back in the late 90s, he was struck by lightning. And he was at a telephone booth when he was struck by lightning. The, the flash came out of the phone and struck him in the face, and he was knocked backwards. But as he's being knocked backwards, his, his body is falling backwards, he actually feels himself moving forward. And he thought, well, this is kind of strange. I know I've just hit, been, been hit by lightning, and, uh, and yet, I'm moving forward, and my body seems to be falling backwards. And then he sees his mother-in-law running down the stairs, screaming. And instead of stopping and, and talking to him and saying, are you okay, she just walks right by, or runs right by him. And then he turns, and he sees his body lying on the ground. Classic NDE, am I right? The near-death experience? Uh, and then as he started to move towards the pavilion where the rest of his family had gathered, he notices that he's becoming, well, he's becoming invisible. His legs are disappearing, and he's, uh, he's, he's feeling just an incredible amount of unconditional love, and he turns around, and there's a nurse happened to be standing behind him at the payphone performing uh, CPR, and she revives him, and bam, he's back in his body. Um... That's a classic NDE, and I had a, um, a chance to sit down and talk with this guy. This is a man of science, and this changed the course of his life, and why wouldn't it? And it does, countless times, uh, people that experience a near-death experience. We're going to talk about that right now and for the next hour. Dr. Lani Leary has over 25 years' experience working as a psychotherapist, and uh, she's called a professor of death studies. We'll find out about, about more about that in a moment. Uh, she's served as the director of mental health services at uh, Whitman Walker AIDS Clinic as a professor of death studies, as I mentioned, at George Mason University and as a researcher at the National Cancer Institute of NHL, or sorry, of NIH, the National Institute of Health. Uh, she's she's uh, also um, the author of a fascinating new book called No One Has to Die Alone and a great pleasure to welcome Dr. Leary to The Conspiracy Show. Hello, doctor. Hello, thanks for having me. A professor of death studies. I've not heard of such a, a, a field. Tell me more about that. Uh, well, the field is actually called thanatology, after the Greek god uh, Thanos, which is um, about death. 
Um, but there are um, there are some uh, universities and colleges that have programs in deaf education, and in my um, it was a uh, graduate course at the university George Mason University in Fairfax, Virginia. And I had nurses and psychology students, uh, clinical psychology students, counselors, educators um, in the class because, of course, all of those people would encounter people with end-of-life issues and grief issues, and we need to train them. And uh, we just don't do a very good job in our culture of um, even speaking about the subject. It's true. Uh, death is has really been sanitized uh, here in in the West, um, yeah. where we we hand the body over to professionals. It's taken mm-hmm. away. The body literally is 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 sanitized. Uh, where you know, a hundred years ago, everyone had a front parlor, and that's where the funeral was held. And uh, uh, of course, in, you have in, in certain cultures where the family members gather together, they they wash the body, they anoint right. the body, they take it to the funeral pyre, they burn the body, and so forth. Mm-hmm. We we really do have an aversion not only to talking about it, but even uh, just uh, uh, dealing with it. And and here you have sat with over 500 people as they died. As they died and, and thousands of others in the process. Yes, it was the greatest privilege of my life. And and, and how how has that shaped uh, the way that you, you feel about uh, about death? Are you, I mean, do you, are, you, are you afraid to die? Well, no, I'm not afraid to die. Um, and in, I would say it's uh, two segments of that. Um, I'm not afraid to die because of my own near-death experience and that I have been there and, uh, and am back. Um, and so I've, I've seen what it is, and I know... I know so many things about uh, death and dying, the process, and I know that um, I was actually told I had to come back because I had work to do, and I knew that this was the work that I was to do. Um, But the other thing is that I'm also not afraid of dying because of all of the things that these very courageous patients have taught me. And I do ask um, direct questions. I do speak to them about the process because I know that so many people pull away uh, at this very, very intimate time. And the dying really want to share the experience. What they're most afraid of is being emotionally or physically abandoned. And so I I really uh, see my job as companioning them right up to the threshold and and almost as a midwife um, on the other end. That's an interesting way of looking at it. We have midwives bringing us in, and why, yep. so why not midwives taking us out? Absolutely. Tell me more about your NDE, your near-death experience. Um, I was uh, 28 and a half and had um, a two-year-old baby, which I, of course, adored, and a husband, and uh, everything was going well in my life. I went to a, um, a just a regular dentist appointment and was given nitrous oxide. Um, this is um, back in the early 80s. And, um, as laughing an, gas. Laughing as gas. an anesthesia. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Laughing gas, right? And uh, my body went into anaphylactic shock. It just had an allergic reaction to the, um, to the nitrous oxide. I don't think it was anyone's fault. And um, I... I was in the dentist chair one minute, and the next thing I knew, without any pain, which is important, uh, was out of my body and up on my consciousness, was up on the ceiling, looking down at this um, inert body, which I felt a fondness for, but no attachment. I really, I felt as though it was a 
kind of a worn out, now mind you, I'm only 28 years old at the time, but kind of a worn out piece of clothing that had taken me to some really great adventures. Um, I'd kind of worn this body to a lot of parties kind of thing, but um, it no longer served me. I didn't need it. And I really knew that it was not me. And that is, that's a, a second important lesson. And um, there was no sense of time, so I can't tell you how long I was up in the corner um, ceiling, but I do know that I was trying to comfort the dentist and trying to communicate with him that I was okay and he didn't need to be anxious or, you know, afraid, but of course he didn't get the message. Um, The next thing I knew, I was going into a beautiful tunnel, um, and the tunnel was kind of an opalescent blue, beautiful, beautiful mother-of-pearl color, and my mother was right at the entrance of that tunnel, and my mother had died uh, 15 years earlier. Uh, my mother died when I was 13, very une- quickly and unexpectedly, and um, I had a lot of grief, a lot of regret and pain about that because I didn't say goodbye to her. I didn't get to visit her in the hospital, and it just felt like there was a lot of unfinished business. But when um, when I, I I saw her, I recognized her, and what's important in that encounter, the third lesson that I use is that um, in death there is healing because my mother um, actually hemorrhaged to death and, and um, was pretty broken, and um, in that encounter, she was whole and vibrant and beautiful and radiant and healthy. So um, in death, she had been healed. And we communicated telepathically. And uh, in other words, I thought and she received and she thought and I received. And um, I could, because there was such a sense of timelessness, and, uh, and I didn't feel rushed. I felt no fear. I felt no anxiety. I really knew that I could have um, spent all the time I wanted catching up kind of in my life. But that, was my, that would have been my ego's response if I had, you know, if, if back here if someone had said to me, well, Lonnie, if you could see your mother, what would you say to her? Uh, the ego would say, oh, I'd tell her about 15 years of experiences. But when I had the opportunity in the tunnel, uh, it was my heart that responded. And what I knew, there was a, a deep, deep sense of wisdom, I don't know another word, um, that um, uh, my mother, I knew that my mother had never left me. She had always been with me. And in fact, she knew all those little details of my life that I had thought I needed to communicate to her. Um, and so with that knowing I, um, I, uh, I, next, I noticed a light off in the far distance, and I, and I was just like I was a, you know, uh, it, it was a magnet to me, and I had to go to it. And so uh, I'm still surprised that I left my mother, but uh, it was all okay. And that's another big lesson, that it, it's all okay. If I could just interject here for a moment, Dr. Leary, yeah. at any point are you seeing uh, people in the dentist's office trying to resuscitate you? Were you clinically dead, uh, do we know, at this point? Yes. Oh, when I was up at the corner of the room, I mean, I didn't hear the pronouncement that I'm clinically dead, but, but I knew that I was not breathing. I knew my heart had stopped, 
and my and the the dentist was trying to work on me but after i left the room my consciousness was no longer in the room so i wasn't witnessing what was happening right Right. yeah so um but i i was pulled towards this light and as i went into the tunnel i heard this beautiful beautiful music um and i'll tell you about that in a minute but um, I heard music, beautiful colors, and I was going towards this light, and the light got bigger and bigger as I got closer to it, or sensed that I was getting closer to it. Let me just stop you right there again. We have some other music coming in, maybe not the music you heard, but this is a music that's going to pull me not towards the light, but into a commercial break. Back on the other side with Dr. Lonnie Leary, the author of No One Has to Die Alone, and you can share your near-death experiences with us as well here on The Conspiracy Show. The phone lines are available to you now. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To get to the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. Keeping an eye on the New World Order, this is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. Dr. Lonnie Leary is a professor of death studies at George Mason University and, or rather, she served as the Director of Mental Health Services at uh, Whitman Walker AIDS Clinic. Are you still a professor of death studies at George Mason? No, actually, that was in Virginia, and I have moved home to Hawaii now. Ah, okay. And so I'm, I'm serving um, and consulting with hospices and in private practice uh, with people at the end of their life. All right, and she's the author of No One Has to Die Alone. She has sat with over 500 people as they died. Back to your near-death experience. Now you're, you're, you're seeing this incredible light. You're feeling this unconditional love, which seems to be a universal yeah. experience with people that have, that have had an, an NDE. Continue, Dr. Leary. Right, right. Um, and I'm, I'm moving towards the present, this, this light, and this light is becoming bigger and brighter. Um, And what I experience is the light is in front of me, and then the light is all around me, and then I am in the light, and what I know is that I am of the same substance as the light. The light and I are one. And I want to stay there forever. I feel as though I'm home. Um, The word bliss does not even come close to the experience, but really knowing an unconditional love that... um, you know, I've just never experienced before, and I wanted to stay there. And then again, um, telepathically, but I felt it in my consciousness, the light said to me, you must go back, and I yelled, no, with all the force that I had. And again, the light said, you must go back, you have work to do. And I yelled again, no. And then I felt as though I was coming back through the tunnel, almost like I was in a blender. It was very kind of disoriented and um, certainly um, disheartening. Um, you know, I, was, I, I wasn't confused. I knew that it happened, but, and then I was uh, conscious again in the dentist chair. But um, How long were you gone? Uh, about eight to ten minutes. And the dentist had never had that experience before and really just 
I, I, I mean, didn't say so, but pretty much just wanted to make sure that I was okay and um, oriented and, um, and even let me drive home. He did? Yeah. Wow. Now, uh, I'm guessing uh, he probably closed shop for the day. At least I know I would if something like that happened. But yeah. now in eight minutes, in eight minutes, um, would that would that mean that um, uh, you would have been technically brain dead for a short period of time? You know, there are all kinds of reports of people having this experience for even longer, and, and it's not documented. The dentist didn't document this. I mean, I don't have this in my dental records. Um, that's the best, you know, guesstimate that I have from what he was saying. Um, but, no, there was, well, obviously there was no brain death. Um, the, um, and I believe, you know, he thought he resuscitated me, um, and it doesn't matter to me. I mean, he, he can have the credit, that's fine. Um, but the experience absolutely changed the course of my life. I guess so. I and guess it so. was after that um, that I started working in hospice because I, I, knew, I knew things about death, and um, I needed to be near people who were dying, and I didn't tell the story. I Actually, I didn't tell. My husband knew something was... Um, Something had transformed in me immediately just by looking at me. But I didn't tell the story um, to anyone because I really felt that I would have been judged or ridiculed, but certainly judged because it sounded like I was a horrible mother, that I was saying no to my baby who needed me, um, you know, to, in order to stay in the light. Um, I was saying yes to that love and peace. Um, I wasn't saying no to my child or my husband, but um, I, I'm certainly not afraid. I really think it's an adventure. I, um, I have great peace. If I die tomorrow, I have great peace about it. And in fact, I live my life as though I am going to die tomorrow so that there isn't any unfinished business. But I take what I know to the bedside of patients and also to the bereaved because, you know, um, to me, really, the, the story isn't the near-death experience. That's not the story. The story is what happens to people, who they are when they come back, because this is a transformative experience, and there are characteristics of, um, you know, most people that come back um, that people are changed. And, and how could um, you not be? Let me, let exactly. me um, offer up the, uh, the old... Um, uh, counter from that comes from the what I call the materialists who believe uh-huh. that consciousness resides inside the human skull and that's it and that's all she wrote. Right. Uh, and they would say that what you experienced was a result of I guess it's referred to as cerebral hypoxia, lack of oxygen to the brain. How do you respond? Well, the the, the difference is that what happened to me is uh, now how many years are we talking about? Thirty years after this experience. The experience is still so vivid, but my life, the way I live my life, is very different. And I guess I would just have to say that the proof is in the pudding. Um, um, you know, I don't try to prove this. It, it doesn't matter. I, I think the proof is, is in my life, and uh, there, it's certainly consistent with all the other um, research in near-death experience. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, from uh, no sense of of, um, of of fear, no no fear of death. Um, certainly, 
really becoming more spiritual and less religious, um, uh, just knowing that life has a purpose, all of those things, and then really using my life in service. Um, also, in, in, you know, increased intuitive um, and psychic abilities, a lot less stressed, um, a real hunger for knowledge and growing. Um, all of those things are the, the byproduct of, of this experience. So I, I want to take that and I take it to the bedside. And people know, people who are dying will share things with me that they don't share with other people. And in fact, often, often, um, at the very end, they'll say to me, you know, don't you? You know something. So is it, it your contention, Dr. Leary, or it, not your contention, but it, is it your uh, a belief that all of us will experience that same, that, that, that feeling of, uh, uh, of love, universal yes. love? We will yes. see the light. We will see our, our, our ancestors who have passed on. Yes. Uh, but only a short number of us will actually come back and get to talk about it. Right, and and I don't I don't know why that is. Um, um, you know, I, I probably have you know I've got work to do. I've got lessons to learn, and um, so I'm back. Um, it wasn't up to me. Um, I have talked with people um, who did have a choice, but I didn't have a choice. Um, but yeah, when I was in the presence of that light, what I knew without without any doubt, and I still hold this so firmly is that there is an, I didn't need to ask for forgiveness. Forgiveness was instant. I was loved beyond all measure. Um, and, and I also knew that there were many paths to that light. And I think that's what happens to a lot of us who come back, is that we turn from the dogma of um, religious uh, institutions and become much broader and inclusive and um, spiritual. Now, uh, but yes, I really believe all of us will be will have that unconditional acceptance and love. It, my uh, narrow experience with NDEs, NDEs, just as a broadcaster and talking to people like yourself who have who've, who've had one, and as I mentioned off the top, I, I recently spoke to a Dr. Anthony Sicoria, um, who was actually included in, in a chapter in a book by Oliver Sacks. Uh-huh. Um, he struck by lightning, uh, had a just a classic NDE, mm-hmm. and um, but what happened to him afterwards was it um, uh, he became fascinated with uh, obsessed with classical music and wanting to learn the piano. Right. Well, did. that's part of that. That's part of what people come back to. Also, they're very sensitive to light and to sound, and um, I, I couldn't walk into noisy groups for a long time. And people are drawn to the classical music. But the way that it changed his life, actually, uh, because he he needed to seek answers, and his this was a man of science. This is an orthopedic surgeon. Yep. Um, who now his entire life was just rocked, and he and it ended up, uh, at least initially, destroying his marriage. They've since yep. reconciled. But I mean, it can be difficult. I'm guessing for the people that around the person who's had an NDE. Yes. Be, uh, can be very difficult. Very, yes, very. In, in fact, this is an interesting statistic, that 65% of marriages, uh, of, of near-death experiencers' marriages, um, end in divorce after this experience, as opposed to like 50% of the general population, because 
people's when this happens to you your values are changed careers are changed religious views are changed and i mean i knew when i came back that my husband had to be on board with me there was uh, there was no there wasn't going to be a negotiation my life was going to be of service and he could either be with me in that or not and how did that work out how yeah. did that? Did it work it out? It worked out just fine. Good, he, good to know. He's a huge supporter, and um, um, you know, it, on his own, on his, on a different path, but um, absolutely supports me. Um, but that doesn't surprise me that um, his marriage would fall apart, and that his career would change, and his focus would change. That's not uncommon. And uh, when you sit, when you, you sit with a dying patient. Uh-huh. I know these are people that are terminally ill, and for them, yeah. there's no coming back. But did, is there, in their final moments, did you do you get a glimpse that they are that they are undergoing this these same sorts of uh, experiences? The bright light, yeah. meeting up with ancestors. Tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, that's called a near death awareness, as a, as opposed to a near death experience. A near death awareness, and and oh, I'll tell you, Richard, I absolutely teach this and and um, encourage people to learn how to listen to the dying and really open up to the symbolic language. Um, and because I am um, open and encouraging of it uh, and, and can ask questions, um, the dying often tell me of visits from loved ones who had predeceased them. And it's very, very common for the dying to see someone enter the room. And I mean, I've I've watched um, I've watched patients almost, you know, argue, um, "Take me now, take me now," you know. Um, or another patient will talk about, uh, will say to me, "Lonnie, do you see that train? The train's coming again." Um, and I'll say, "Well, do you think it's time to get on the train?" Or tell me, "Is there somebody else on the train that's?" waiting for you and you know just that just the opening the wondering allows them to explore it instead of be afraid of it but generally they're not afraid because these are loved ones who are coming and even children um when i was um at nia the national institute of health um and working um, there were children who were dying of aids and um we would speak to the parents after the death and so important to be able to ask open questions such as, now this is to a bereaved parent, I would say to them, have you had any experience of your son since he died? And they would just lean into me and thank me profusely for asking that question because they so wanted to talk about the after-death communication or their child coming to them in a very, very vivid and meaningful dream and usually, uh, you know, consistently, the message from the deceased is, "It's okay, I'm okay, um, and I'll see you again." And you can imagine the significance of of validating that experience for a bereaved parent. It makes all the difference in the world in how they grieve. And yet, for the majority, they don't get that after death communication. I'm guessing. I don't know what the statistics are. I mean, an, an awful lot do, and they, uh-huh. and, they t- and they talk to me on the program, but uh, most don't. I'm guessing. And why well, is that? Those parents. I did a study, and those parents um, actually the the um, statistic was 86 percent of parents did report that. Really? And I'm going. And I'll tell you one of the most fascinating stories. So um, I knew I was going to get a you know a lot of skepticism and flack about this. And so I wanted to do another study 
with the most difficult, I thought, um, population. And so I chose to study parents who had children die of SIDS, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. Oh, dear. And Mm. these were pre-verbal infants. And I polled a large group of parents at the International SIDS uh, Conference, and the statistic came back the same, about 85 86%. And, you know, you would say, well, you know, how can children who are pre-verbal communicate? It, these parents had a visceral sense um, that their child was okay. They saw them. They got that, you know, they got that... Um, that smile or that glint in their eye or something. But these parents were absolutely convinced. 86%. message from their child that they were okay. I'm absolutely uh, gobsmacked at that statistic. 86%. Yeah. All right. We'll take a time out. We'll come back. The phone lines are filling up. New York, Sydney, Toronto want to weigh in on the near-death experience. Back with more in a moment. The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Peering into the shadows where the truth often hides. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio, AM 740. Big Brother is listening, and so are you. Welcome back. Dr. Lonnie Leary is with us, and... uh, we're talking about near-death experiences, and her book is No One Has to Die Alone. Let's get to the phones, and welcome Derek from New York. Welcome, Derek. Yeah, hi, Richard. Uh, doctor. Yes. Yeah, you didn't mention about how long ago your experience was. Oh, she did, actually. Mine, yeah. which was of a similar nature, was in 1969. Just like mm-hmm. you said, mm-hmm. I can remember it like it was yesterday. I can't yeah, tell you what vivid, I had to... right? Yeah, I can't tell you what I had for dinner two nights ago, but I can tell you every little facet of that thing. Right. And there's a reason for that that I don't hear yourself or anybody else when they talk about this stressing. And that is, I noticed with my own experience, the thing that was the most proof to me beyond the three that you gave Richard when Richard asked you initially whether you feared death, and you said, you know, being out in the ceiling and being outside your body and all these things were proofs to you. But the, the, the biggest proof to me, because I concur with every experience you had, but the overwhelming thing to me was when I came out of the whole thing, the sense of reality of the experience. Now, let me just clarify that. When you're dreaming, the dream seems w- real. And when you wake up from the dream, you realize you were dreaming. Why do you realize you were dreaming? Because when you're in this reality here, it has more of a substance of realness to you, so you realize, oh, that was only a dream. Mm-hmm. And in the same respect, the dream fades. You know, like you can remember it right when you wake up, yes. but midday you try and recall the dream. You can't remember all the little facets about it. Right, it's that's very fleeting. consciousness. Right. It's like, and here you are in this reality, and if I ask you what you had for uh, breakfast uh, three days ago, unless you have the same thing every day, you might not remember. Right. But you can remember every facet of that. Mm-hmm. That's and the reason point. is the reality of that, like the way this is to a dream, that yes. is to this. Right. You follow what I'm saying? I do. And nobody it's... talks about that aspect of it. 
Yeah, the, it's it's coming back to a thinner uh, reality, and as though, well, I think many of us walk around really knowing what's important in a in a different way, and um, and we we don't take ourselves as seriously. We may take the work seriously, but we're able to see things um, much more um, abstractly, and e- even from a grander not grander from a from a more philosophical point of view, but there's really an expansiveness. Uh, Derek, very, very quickly, if you could, what, what were the circumstances uh, which led to your near-death experience? Excuse me? Uh, quickly, what were the circumstances? Oh, it was a drowning thing. It was a drowning. Mm. That went too far. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. And again, bright light. Uh, uni- no, uh, the tunnel thing, that, 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 that was not there. And some of the people, because I, I worked as a lifeguard, and my curiosity about this prior to 1969 started with dealing with, with a few patients that have, like, were drowned and through <coughs> artificial respiration, you know, to bring them back. Mm-hmm. Not everybody, but a small percentage of them would recount the same kind of story. Mm-hmm. You know, like, they were somewhere else, <coughs> there was a bright light, it was very, they felt very loved and everything, you know, yeah. and they all said the same thing consistently. Yeah. And that's what got my, that's what got my initial curiosity. I didn't know that it was in the cards for me. Mm-hmm. You know, within about a year after that, but like just going through the experience, I, you know, the last thing you, you're different, and I take my hat off to you that you're trying to help people with their transition. But because of what you're left with, and the sense of the unreality, so so to speak, of this, I'm living in this reality, so I'm making the most of it. I cherish every moment of life, mm-hmm. but I know beyond that that this is not real. Excellent point. Excellent mm-hmm. point. And that's why we remember it, because it's more real than what we're living and experiencing yeah. right now. Yeah. Great call from New York, Derek. Thank you for that. Thanks, Derek. Uh, Chris is up next, and she is in Sydney, Australia. Chris, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hi, Richard. It's a he. All right. Uh, I'm sorry, Chris. And, I don't know why. Uh, I, I, nice Hi, to meet Chris. you, Chris. Got a quick question. I should have another quick question. Just is there any documentation or any sort of study of diagnosed sociopaths having near-death experience and what's been reported back from that? I'm sorry, is there any research about what? Uh, diagnosed sociopaths. Oh. So people who are true sociopaths, they lack, seem to lack uh, empathy. Right. Some people say... That's an that interesting be, question. That would be an interesting study, and that they come back and um, their sociopathy has changed. Um, I, you know, I don't know any of those. Um, I don't know that that study, uh, I don't know anything about that, but boy, would that be interesting. I'd really love to follow that. Wouldn't that be, uh, wouldn't that be proof? The, yeah, healing, so, the oh, healing that you can come back with. And, and also, uh, along the same lines, have there been individuals who have had a near-death experience that wasn't positive, perhaps? Yes, actually there are. Um, it's rare, um, but there is a percentage that have. Um, I couldn't tell you that right now. It's, it's less, um, but um, people have uh, met lessons. You know, this, in other words, a lot of people, I did not have a life review, but a lot of people have a life review, and in that life review, um, uh, I've heard that people feel everything that they have ever thought towards others. Well, if that's the case, 
you know, we would probably run up against our own maliciousness or the errors of our way, and yeah. then it, that might feel like hell, right? Yeah, I'll bet. That's not something I'm looking forward to. All right, we'll take a time out, come back. Uh, Chris and Sydney, thank you for the call. We'll get to some more when we come back. The Conspiracy Show discussing near-death experiences. Stay with us. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM 740. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio, AM 740. To speak to Richard live, Call 416-360-0740 or toll-free in Ontario, 1-866-740-4740. Welcome back. Dr. Lonnie Leary is uh, with us, 25 years experience working as a a psychotherapist, and uh, she has sat with over 500 people as they died. She's the author of No One Has to Die Alone. I guess from a a religious uh, perspective, uh, uh, coming at it from a a Christian perspective, if there is a heaven and a hell, one would expect that that there would be um, near-death experiences that aren't too pleasant. I don't know that that people would necessarily report glimpses of, uh, you know, eternal damnation or or, uh, fire and brimstone, but um, as you were pointing out before the break, there have been some unpleasant uh, experiences. Mm-hmm. Um, we, but we tend to we tend to hear the uh, again the ones of the uh, you know the, the bright light, the tunnel, the love uh, being welcomed by those on the other side. Uh, again, going back to the people that you've sat with, these five hundred dying patients, is there anything um, that you've observed at the moment of death? Uh, that you found unexpected. Uh, I'm thinking of, um, I've heard reports and nurses and so forth who've, who've told me on the air, they've seen, they've seen, they, they believe they've witnessed the soul leaving the body. Uh-huh. Have you, have you seen anything like that? Well, I can, I can feel the energy leave the body. One of the, one of the things that happened to me when I returned was a lot of people will have, um, um, heightened psychic abilities or uh, healing abilities. I have, I, I returned with the ability to um, feel people's energy and to move pain out of the body, um, and so I, I, I can I can feel the energy um, leaving the physical body and sometimes hovering in the room. Um, that it, that no longer surprises me, um, and certainly doesn't frighten me. And but I, I do experience that. And what about family members? Uh, I, I don't know what if there's a name attached to this, but the family members whose loved one is dying and has a near-death, um, what did you call that? Um, uh, near-death awareness? Near-death awareness. Uh-huh. Uh, do, do family members also sense something if they're gathered around the, uh, the, the, the you know, holding a vigil? You know, I, I don't find that very common. Um, the the person who is leaving their body um, really has a just a heightened heightened awareness. People, family members who are gathered around the bed are usually um, pretty cloaked in um, their own grief, and that does make it difficult to um, to get outside of themselves. Um, and and one of the reasons that I think the work is so important is, is because I, I somehow can communicate through stories or encouragement that at the moment of death that the, 
the person is not suffering, that death, sometimes dying may be painful, but today with hospice and palliative care services, death, actually dying doesn't have to be painful, but certainly I know that the moment of death is not painful, and that we can continue to have a relationship with our loved one even after they die. Um, and that contact can occur, and that, you know, we need, let's pay attention. So pay attention to dreams. Pay attention to those things that, um, to the light that comes on or the music that comes on that normally uh, we might dismiss. Pay attention as the, op- you know, that that it might be an opportunity. Um, I, I think all of those things can be very comforting to both the person who's dying and to those who are grieving the loss of that loved one. As you're sitting with a patient, and let's let's assume for a moment that they have no, um, there's there isn't a, a spiritual component to their life. They're not uh-huh. they're they're an agnostic or they're a, an, an atheist, uh-huh. uh, and they tell you that they are afraid to die. Uh, what what do you say to them? They're afraid to die. Well, I usually ask them, "What do you think is the worst part of dying?" So there's a lot of information in that that statement that we haven't gotten to yet. So. I'll want to open that discussion up, and and they want someone so badly to listen to them. Because most people, when when they say that, when the patient says that to a family member, um, the family member will close down the conversation because they, too, are afraid of dying. But because I'm not afraid of dying, I can inquire with them. I can wonder with them. I can go there. What do you think is the worst part of dying or death? What do you think is the worst thing about death? Um, what do you imagine? What is your fantasy? What is your belief? And in that, then I can start to identify what they need. So oftentimes, a person is, what they're most afraid of about death is that people will forget them. Or they're afraid that they will die without before they were forgiven for something. Well, if I can hear that from the patient, then I know what they need. And, uh, for instance, um, I'm, uh, a patient says, you know, I, I just did some horrible things to my son, and I'm so afraid that um, he'll never forgive me, and I'll never have another chance. Okay, well, w- would you be willing to talk to your son about that now? And so I might call the son in and say, this is important in order for your father to let go and die in peace. Would you be willing to hear his apology? Would you be willing to forgive him? Let's okay. go back. Yes, that's that's um, exactly what I was looking for. Uh-huh. Um, I'll tell you what, uh, before I get to Faye here, uh, uh, and thanks, Faye, for holding on. Uh, I'm not, uh, like you, I'm not afraid of, of, you know, what's beyond death. Um, I am somewhat nervous about the dying process. Uh, right. If it's, you know, a long, agonizing right. process. In particular, the idea of, of struggling for breath. I, I happen to be very claustrophobic. And uh-huh. uh, so the idea of that sensation that I'm not getting enough oxygen into my lungs, I, it, it can be, a, I, mm-hmm. I can go into a panic. Okay. So that, that fear I have, what would you okay. tell me? But see, Richard, that's so helpful to know because if I was working with you, then I would be able to work with the, um, the hospice nurses or your physician 
to really address that need. And um, we'd always have oxygen there for you. We would have a physical therapist there perhaps with you um, to do exercises with you that expanded and opened up your chest and your lungs. Um, I would be able to relieve some anxiety with massage and touch, which a lot of the dying do not get. Um, And we would talk directly about your fear and what helped and what doesn't. Interesting. That's you know, that's, an, that's a very good point. You know, the, that we we just tend to cast off the dying. They're still a patient up until up to the moment. They're living right up. Yes. I want them to live right up to the last moment of their of their life. And there are so many ways that we can help and make that happen. And one of the ways is by having these conversations with our loved ones right now, before you need to have them. When you are conscious and you're not terribly emotional because, uh, and you're not fearful because you don't have a terminal illness, we need to be having these conversations around the dinner table. And um, so I get called into families um, often because uh, mom is getting older and um, the daughter doesn't know what her wishes are, but she's afraid to ask mom. And the reason she's afraid to ask is because she doesn't want mom to think you're becoming a burden, and I just want you to die. So I go into the home, and I model. I give them the language. I show them what it looks like to have that conversation. And I might sit down with the mom and say, you know, Betty, I am so glad that I live to be 58. Um, actually, I guess I'm 59. Um, I'm so glad that I live to be 59 because I've just gotten information about what it takes to be an organ and tissue donor. And I figured out um, uh, that I want to be cremated and where I want my ashes. And I'm so glad that I figured this out so that I can tell my loved ones so they can really make sure I get what I want. And I'll go through a whole lot of different scenarios and and decisions that I need to make before my death. And then I'll say, and Betty, I wonder if you've thought about any of those things. Because, you know, I know your daughter wants to support your wishes, but it's really hard to do that if she doesn't know what they are. Indeed. Well, so can we start to have that conversation? You know, just little bit by little bit. But um, we do not want to die and let our legacy be uh, that what we've left behind is that our loved ones are anxious and grief-stricken and feel guilty because they didn't do, they didn't know what we wanted, and they might have done the wrong thing. Death is in the West. Death is failure. It's perceived as a failure by the medical community. We have yep. lost one. Uh, it's yep. to be avoided at all costs. Instead of, it's just another part of life. It's and it can be beautiful. Death can be it, beautiful. This can be the most intimate time in a relationship, instead of a train wreck. And if we don't talk about it, if we're not present with each other it can become a train wreck that wounds us for the rest of our life, those that are, you know, the survivors. Excellent point. Faye is near Toronto. Faye, welcome to The Conspiracy Show. Hey, Richard. Hi there. I listen to the show every week. Thanks for taking my call. I just wanted to say that I um, have a similar experience to the doctor, only it was 42 years ago Mm. when I was 20 years old, and I was a mother of a five-week-old baby at the time. Uh-huh. And I, since I'd just given birth, I, I couldn't believe how much I loved that little thing. Yes. But I was quite willing to abandon him to go into that tunnel. Uh-huh. Yeah. And my 
and my dad, who had died actually six days earlier, was at the tunnel and told me to go back. It wasn't my time. Yeah, yeah. When you came back, Faye, was there guilt because you felt that way about your daughter? No, it wasn't guilt, really. I mean, later it was, but at the time it was just so much regret that I did come back. Uh Uh-huh. Right. It wasn't anything about, I didn't feel guilty till later, but I so wanted to go in that tunnel. I wanted to be with my dad. It was just so beautiful right. that it was beyond description. Plus, before that time, I was very fearful of death, and um, my dad had a long battle with cancer, so none of that was pleasant. But yet, after that experience, I wasn't afraid at all. And did you experience your father as healed? Yes, he looked uh-huh. actually before he looked, he actually died when he was 49. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. So he looked very bad at the end, but he looked like his old self again. Yeah. Yeah. And and so happy looking and but I but he just put his hand up like almost like a stop sign like mm-hmm. no. Mhm. Go back. Mhm. But um I I actually say it isn't really my name, but I don't want to give it because this experience is also very private. Yes. And I didn't tell anybody except my doctor, I actually was having, I had to have an emergency operation, and he dismissed it out of hand that, yes, obviously, it was lack of oxygen to the brain, but I just wonder why are the, and I didn't read anything until I was about 37, and I was shocked that anyone else had had the same experience, and then I was like, wow, that's just like mine. Right. Yeah, when I came back, I hadn't known anyone that had the experience either, and it's very, very isolating, and you don't really even have the words to um, describe it, but it is very, um, yeah, it's it's very isolating and um, confusing. Faye in Toronto, thank you for the call. Thank you, Faye. And, um, wow, uh, Dr. Leary, I don't know where that hour went, but uh, Uh (laughs) uh, it's gone, and I thank you for spending it with us. And um, we'll have to do this again because, obviously, there's so many aspects uh, that we didn't cover. I'd Uh, love to. So I I appreciate your time. Thank you again, Dr. Lonnie Leary and the uh, the author of the book, No One Has to Die Alone. Give us a website very quickly, Dr. Leary. Uh Uh-huh. I blog for psychologytoday.com. And I also have my own personal website, and that's uh, uh, Dr. D.R. Lonnie, L-A-N-I, Leary, L-E-A-R-Y.com. And I write a blog on there, and you can also consult with me there. Aloha. Thank you. Aloha to you, too. All right. My thanks to uh, David Gaskin for uh, his technical production. And uh, thanks to the new guy, Tim. I don't know your last name yet, but we will get to know each other. You may regret it. (laughs) Uh, All right, back uh, with a whole slate of new shows. The Shroud of Turin, The Bilderbergs, Psychic Bigfoot, and much more. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night.
This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.